Uh, hey, everyone. It's uh, Russ Thornton, uh, the host of Women's Retirement Radio. And uh, I'm excited today to uh, welcome uh, Dan Munster to the show. Uh, Dan is a local Atlanta-based uh, elder uh, care attorney. Um, and we've got a lot to talk about. Um, I think uh, I think the challenge today will be uh, limiting um, limiting the conversation so we don't go on for hours and hours, which we could probably easily do. So, uh, Dan, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Appreciate yeah, glad, yeah, super glad to have you. So um, I know prior to hitting record, you had shared a ton of information with me, including your uh, bio and some other information. But why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Okay. So I'm now somewhere between 25 and 30 years uh, out of law school. So at this point, I'm kind of at the the what you might call the center of my professional career. The first few years I practiced back in the mid nineties, I had a just an amazing opportunity to work with the Senior Citizens Law Project, which is a, a unit within the Atlanta Legal Aid Society. And then uh, back in 1999, I set up my own practice and have uh, been practicing as a solo attorney since 1999. So that would be 22 years of the total. And during that time, all I've ever done is elder care. Um, over time, that grew a little bit into special needs planning, but I don't do what a lot of other estate planning attorneys and even other elder care attorneys do, which is dabble in uh, things like guardianship or probate or social security disability. Uh, my practice is fairly uh, narrow in its focus, and that focus is primarily long-term care, Medicaid, and VA planning for families that are struggling with financing the cost of expensive long-term care, whether that be at home or in an assist assisted living setting or in a nursing home. So that's yeah. a little bit about my practice. I'm not sure how much are you asking about personally, or you know, you tell me. I'm it's an open book. So yeah, well, I I think uh, I think our listeners always enjoy kind of getting to know the the person uh, beyond just the profession. So uh, so yeah, share a little bit about you know who you are as a person and what you do when you're not uh, helping seniors with uh, elder care law issues. Sure. Um, well, I'm I'm blessed to have an amazing wife and. Uh, though we got married a little bit later than normal, we were fortunate and have uh, two wonderful little boys who are four and six, and uh, they definitely wear me out and keep me busy. Um, I'm not sure about you or your listeners, but if uh, if you've ever had two boys close to each other in age, you don't really do much else at this point of life besides manage them from injuring themselves or burning the house down or um, just keeping them safe. And, you know, now they're back in school. Obviously, COVID has really complicated things from, from that standpoint, but they are back in school and um, doing well. And, and so right now, the majority of my time is spent either um, here at the office or with my family. And if I, if memory serves me, several weeks ago, when you and I first kind of reconnected after having not spoken in a while, um, I think you were coming back from a camping trip. Uh, I want to say it was up in Michigan or Minnesota. Is that right? One of the M's. Yes, it was Minnesota. Each year, my family has a, this was the 17th annual 
family reunion where a bunch of us get together and go camping up in northern Minnesota. And so um, we actually took last year off because of COVID and people needing to fly. But this year we decided to um, make the trip and it was a great, great trip, caught a lot of fish, um, just had a wonderful time. So definitely. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing, sharing all that. Um, so back to your work in, uh, in elder, uh, elder care law. Um, when you were introducing yourself and what it is you do, you, you highlighted uh, several things, uh, everything from uh, long-term care to Medicaid planning to VA benefits and things like that. Um, but what would you say from your perspective, Dan, is the biggest challenge that you help people address or solve? Um, well, the, the biggest challenge, the reason people eventually find me is because there aren't very many attorneys out there, certainly ones who have a depth of knowledge in the, the area of long-term care planning. And so um, I literally just got off the phone four minutes ago with a, a daughter. She's an only child. Her mother is bedridden. Her father is 87 trying to take care of her. She's having to leave work twice a day to go home and change her mom's depends. And they own a house and have life savings of a couple hundred thousand dollars. And everybody is terrified about how are we gonna afford the care that's needed? How is the burden of caregiver impacting dad's health as an 87 year old man? Um, and is there any way where we can get help either at home or God forbid, if she ever needed to move out into a nursing home setting, um, is there a way we can get some help because the cost is otherwise prohibitive? And so, you know, that's an average client. Um, that would be somebody whose net worth might be, including their home, sub $500,000. And yet that's still um, more than Medicaid allows. Now, I mean, this is as good a chance as any or opportunity uh, as any to clarify that the rules are greatly misunderstood when it comes to how one qualifies for Medicaid um, or VA benefits and what's permitted. And so, you know, there's quite a few urban legends and myths that um, maybe we, we can talk a little bit about today, which um, relate a lot to the quality of care someone might receive, relate to the um, the idea that somebody has to be bankrupt or, you know, virtually destitute before they can get help. And so, you know, those are, like I said, those are just urban legends. And so my role when helping families address this primary challenge that I, uh, I help families do, um, the, the primary concern is figuring out a way we can navigate within the rules without breaking the law without doing anything unethical, without cutting corners, you know, what, where are the four corners of the law and what can we choose to do within those four corners, which would just be smart. And, and so um, it's amazing how much misunderstanding and misinformation is out there about this. And um, so I, I get to be the, the good guy and help people understand that the sky isn't falling and that 
In this case, for example, we can preserve 100% of all of that property and we can minimize the state recovery and we can pursue in-home help from Medicaid. We can, if ever needed, pursue nursing home uh, assistance if ever needed. So, you know, I get to, I get to help, help families overcome a lot of stress and anxiety and fear. And so it's part of why I love what I do. Yeah, and I just to kind of set the table, um, you, you threw out some terms in there, um, maybe one of the biggest being Medicaid itself. Um, could you take just a moment and kind of explain at least at a high level what Medicaid is? Um, you know, it's funny because sometimes I, I should have learned this by now, um, but sometimes I take for granted that people do have at least a basic understanding. And the reality is until somebody faces the need, they would have no reason to really know about or understand what Medicaid is, and in particular, how to contrast it with Medicare. And so the best way to explain what Medicaid is conceptually is to, to contrast it with Medicare. And so the first big difference between the two is that Medicare is a national program. Most folks have the impression that Medicaid is also a national or a federal program. And that's theoretically true. And yet it's administered on a state by state basis. So really what you have uh, is, is a, a country consisting of 50 states, each with its own Medicaid program. And so Medicare is national and everywhere you go, it's the same. Your Medicare goes with you across state lines, and there's only four types of Medicare. Part A for hospital uh, coverage, part B is outpatient doctor office uh, medical care for the most part, part D is prescription drug insurance, and then I skipped C. C is the, the Advantage plan experiment where people can go off of Medicare and onto a private insurance plan designed to mirror A, B, and D. And so that's national. Medicaid is very state specific. Another big difference is that Medicare is something that we pay into during our, our working years or our spouse does. And as a result, when we later qualify for Medicare, we're actually getting back something that we funded through our salary deductions. It's not need-based. So literally Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, or anyone else you can think of is Medicare eligible without regard to how many millions or billions of dollars they have. The difference is that Medicaid is a need-based program. And so Medicaid will look at someone's assets and income and certain types of Medicaid. They will look at historical transfers, meaning divestitures of assets, gifts, the use of trusts, things which uh, people often, when trying to invent the wheel for themselves, will decide they're going to pursue those sorts of divestitures. And there's, there's quite a few rules, as you, as you know, that forbid that. And so um, that's the biggest difference uh, between Medicare and Medicaid is one is, is need-based and one isn't. And if you have too much savings, or if your income is too high, then their perspective is you don't need help yet, go away and come back later when you do. Going away and coming back eligible is a function of 
spending or getting advice from an elder care attorney about how to adapt one's finances to navigate within the rules and, and then uh, file, a, file an application and, and be approved. So that's, that's the difference between the two. Medicaid is a healthcare program. And so Medicaid does not pay, this is a little bit disappointing, um, it doesn't pay for assisted living, not in Georgia. If you have uh, clients who are outside of Georgia, the state they're in might have assisted living Medicaid, but here in Georgia, we don't. So this gets back to um, the idea that there are many uh, types of Medicaid. It's not just being on Medicaid. In Georgia, I think we have 34 now classes of Medicaid. And the two that come up most for, for my practice are nursing home and what's called the community care services program, which is an uh, in-home long-term care Medicaid program that up until recently wasn't really viable because it had a long waiting list. But through effective management and also additional funding, they've managed to whittle down the waiting list and so now I'm able to help families qualify for, on average, about four to six hours a day of in-home personal care, unskilled support, things that Medicare won't pay for. And so um, it's a wonderful uh, sort of uh, program that dovetails with nursing home Medicaid. If someone needs more than four to six hours of care at home, we don't have 12 or 24 hour Medicaid at home, we've just got the, the next option is, is unfortunately having to move out to a nursing home. So that's a little bit about what Medicaid is and how it differs from Medicare. And hopefully that answers your question. Uh, it does. Thank you. And, and super helpful. <laughs> In fact, hearing, hearing that explanation, like another dozen questions um, come, come to mind. Um, but um, maybe, maybe you could give a little bit more color, Dan, on the fact that um, or I, I shouldn't assume it's a fact. Um, do people really need to be kind of destitute or, you know, um, hovering around, you know, uh, little to no assets or personal wealth before they qualify for assistance under Medicaid? Or um, I, I know you've kind of uh, referred to the fact that there are things that a, um, you know, an experienced elder care attorney like yourself can can help with to, to mitigate that. So could you speak a little bit about not getting too deep in the weeds, but a little bit about like kind of what the rules are, maybe touch on uh, estate recovery, things like that? Sure. Um, I think it would be helpful before I do that to circle back to one of the topics I mentioned a second ago, because a lot of, a lot of people will tune out and be not all that interested in hearing about how Medicaid works or how they might qualify if they are suffering from the misperception that Medicaid is not my objective because it's my understanding that if I ever go on Medicaid, then I'm going to be getting substandard bad uh, care. I'll have to be in some sort of government Medicaid facility and therefore receive poor care. So why should I even bother trying to understand the rules and qualify for a program that's going to provide bad care to me? 
And so um, from that standpoint, I want to make sure, Russ, to clarify that um, it, it's one of the biggest urban legends out there that Medicaid equals bad care or different care or substandard care. And so to help um, exemplify that, um, in Georgia, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 360 nursing homes. Approximately 97% of them are dual certified Medicare and Medicaid nursing homes. So they provide both skilled nursing care and what's known as intermediate level nursing care. Across that whole spectrum, there are great nursing homes, there are good ones, there are average ones, there are poor ones, and there are terrible ones. The point though is that 97% of all of them, including some over at the excellent end, participate in Medicaid. And so um, it is not accurate to say, well, if I'm going to go on Medicaid, then by definition, I will receive substandard care. The real question that people should ask is, um, if I'm in a good nursing home and therefore will receive good care, how do I identify those places and how do I get a bed there? And that's where um, it's important to understand that walking uh, up to the front door of a top rated nursing home and knocking on the door and saying, I'd like to have a bed, please but I don't have any savings and I'm destitute and I, I, the best I can offer you is Medicaid. They are allowed to ask about people's finances and they're allowed to decide that they don't want to do business with that person. They can decline admission. And so understanding that all of these nursing homes are compensated on a three-tier system, post-hospital Medicare is at the top, rehab, and, and skilled therapy. Um, and then the middle tier is private pay, long-term care. And then the lowest rate of revenue is Medicaid long-term care. And so one of the biggest mistakes I see families make is the assumption that they're going to um, stretch mom's money as long as they can at the $6,000 a month assisted living facility and then after the money runs out, then only at that point will they consider moving mom to a nursing home. And so the problem with that is, is obviously that if you wait until you have nothing to offer besides Medicaid, you're very unlikely to get a bed at a well-respected nursing home. And so it's typically a better choice to move mom or dad or spouse prior to being out of money, if you will, um, so that you can offer something better than just the lowest rate of reimbursement. Um, so that's, uh, that's uh, an important thing for folks to understand that, you know, just because someone receives assistance through Medicaid doesn't mean their care is going to be deficient. You really just need to understand the three-tier system that I just described and leverage, ideally, leverage Medicare. So if there's somebody who has a, a stroke or a fall and a broken hip or some other medical event that necessitates a move into a nursing care setting, 
then that's going to be the moment at which they have the greatest leverage to get a, a bed there. Um, as far as the, the question you've asked about finances, obviously a, a conversation like this is not designed to go into um, all of the fine print, but in general, the, the eligibility rules that apply to everyone break down into four categories. The first is a medical level of care analysis. Uh, and then the other three relate to finances. So one relates to monthly income. One relates to the value of someone's assets. And then the final one relates to historical transfers or gifts that have been made for less than fair market value. So selling someone an asset for $10 and calling it a sale doesn't count because it was not for fair value. On the other hand, if you sell a house valued at $200,000 for $200,000, that's not a transfer subject to penalty. It's a transfer, but it wouldn't be penalized because it was for fair value. So those three tests, income, assets, and transfers are why I have a job. People need to understand what those rules are and if they're outside those rules, how can they uh, adapt? So from an income standpoint, uh, the monthly income limit is $2,382. And that, that limit applies just to the spouse who's applying for Medicaid. Obviously, if the client is unmarried, it applies to them and there's no confusion about that. Um, however, you know, going back to the example of the family I just spoke to, the husband, who would not be the applicant, he had income of more than $3,000 a month. The wife's only income is a $1,086 social security check. So although together they have over $4,000 per month of income, she actually passes the income test because she is individually underneath the 2382 limit. If someday they needed to file for Medicaid for him, and he's over the income limit, then we have a, a, an irrevocable Medicaid qualified income trust, uh, a tool in my tool belt that we can use to cleanse failure of the income test. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how the income analysis works. The asset analysis is, is done differently. So whereas they look only at the income of the spouse applying, when it comes to the assets, they actually look at everything that both spouses own. And so um, it, it doesn't necessarily accomplish anything to reposition assets from one spouse to the other because when Medicaid views the, the couple as a, a unit, when it comes to the asset test, they see anything in either spouse's name. When they look at those assets, they'll categorize them into two sections. One section is exempt and therefore the value of those assets does not impact eligibility. And the other category, the non-exempt or what you might call countable, those assets are limited. For someone who's unmarried, that limit is just $2,000. For someone who is married, that number jumps all the way to $132,380 of countable property. Getting 
you know, there are exceptions to the general rules that I'm about to share, but in general, one's home place for um, a couple without regard to value is going to be an exempt asset for purposes of eligibility. And so the fact that this couple I'm, I'm using as an example own a home valued at $275,000 is not, that's not even part of the 132. Um, and so in addition to the, to the home, they have about 200,000 other dollars, but we're talking about a couple that's allowed to have 132. So they walked in my, my figurative door with a $275,000 house and $132,000 of countable property already off the table. And the other 68 is really what we have to focus on. That's where they have exposure. Um, and so um, again, we're not getting into the spe specifics of how to plan for that family, but in general, we're gonna look at paying debts and acquiring exempt assets and um, making needed repairs to the home or trading in their car and paying cash for a, a new one instead of the, you know, everybody seems to have a, an old Buick or Oldsmobile or Crown Victoria as well big, is a big one. Um, and, and, you know, it's time to get a new car with airbags and anti-lock brakes. So there are a lot of things that can be selected, which don't violate the five-year look back rule because, you're just spending your money for fair value on things which are exempt. And so in an example like this, it's very simple to reposition $68,000 in a way where we get full value from it and don't necessarily have to write any eight or nine or even $10,000 per month checks for private pay long-term care because we can qualify real quickly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a snapshot of, of how it works. Um, and I hope that was helpful. Did it answer your question? It did. And it did. And, and I appreciate that. And, and you mentioned this, could you elaborate a little bit more about the five-year look back? Yes. And you also asked about a state recovery. So I'm going to, um, touch on that, uh, as well before we wrap up. Um, so the five-year look back rule is, uh, I guess the first thing to say is that it's not a cap on the duration of a penalty. So if somebody gives away $1, they're not going to have a five-year penalty. If somebody gives away a million dollars, their penalty is going to be far longer than five years if they are foolish enough to apply for Medicaid within five years. My point being that there's a formula that, that will be applied which calculates the duration of a penalty, and it's a function of the size of the gift. On the other hand, if somebody waits until after five years and the Medicaid caseworker asks, have you made any transfers or gifts in the last five years? Then the client can simply answer no, honestly, and the caseworker will go to the next question. That same client, if they applied the day before, within five years, their transfer could result in a six or seven or 10 or 20 year penalty, depending on how big it was. Um, so the first thing to remember is that the five years is just the duration backwards in time, Medicaid will look 
to determine whether any transfers were made for less than fair value? And if the answer is yes, then a penalty is imposed based on the size of that gift. Um, there are exceptions to the general transfer rules. And so uh, that's a big part of, of what I'm looking for every time I uh, am gathering facts from a new client um, is to make sure to uh, ferret out application of any exception that, that might exist. Um, one that I, I'm, I'll give as an example sort of generically is that under, under the right circumstances, if a child moves into a parent's home to provide care and they do it for a long enough period of time, then the parent can actually give that house to the child as essentially as a reward for providing care which otherwise would have, without that care, mom would have needed to go into a nursing home. And so the, the Medicaid program says, if that child provides care long enough, and it's a, it's a number of years, not days or something, it's gotta be a substantial investment of sweat equity in taking care of mom or dad or whomever, um, then that transfer can be made and no penalty applies. So there is, there's a long list of, of potential exceptions, and that's definitely something that families need advice from an elder care attorney about before they start making gifts or transfers. Uh, on that point, you know, I'm sure you hear this all the time, people are, um, you know, they're under the impression that the government, air quotes, will allow gifts of $15,000 a year and so they assume that, that that applies to Medicaid, when in fact, that's a rule that applies to multi-multi-millionaires when they're divesting assets to avoid tax. And that law is, is on the books, it exists, but it doesn't apply to any of my clients who are not multi-millionaires. Medicaid doesn't really care what the IRS lets those ultra wealthy people give away and therefore Medicaid penalizes all of those $15,000 gifts. So um, it's important for folks to understand that that's not one of the exceptions that they might otherwise think is on the list. Um, and, and it's probably a good idea to get advice before they start making gifts or um, the use of trusts comes up and uh, penalties come up under the heading of the five-year look back because um, in most cases, use of a trust is not going to add value unless you are way, way out in advance. Um, I'm a little uncomfortable going into the specifics, but you probably know the look back period, right? Yeah. And so as far as you know, how many years is it? Well, so well, which look back are you talking about for transfers or? The Medicaid transfer look back period. That's the five years, I believe. Right. So that's what I've heard as well. And so if somebody wants to use a trust as part of a preemptive Medicaid plan, then they need to have uh, a variety of other plans lined up in case they're ever going to uh, potentially need help within the next five years. Um, and so you can't just set up a trust today and apply for Medicaid tomorrow in most cases. 
going back to the list of exceptions, there are some exceptions on the list which could ultimately uh, rely on a trust. Um, but in general, that's a, a, a greatly misunderstood area. Um, in fact, it's, 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 it's pretty common that somebody will call me and say, a friend told me I can you know, throw all my stuff in a trust and then I'll be safe. Um, when in reality, you've, you know, there's more to it than that. As far as estate recovery goes, um, estate recovery is the idea that someone can go on Medicaid owning assets of significant value, assets which are uh, countable within that 132,000 or exempt, for example, a home place and get help. However, when someone passes away, there's a rule that says Medicaid uh, gets to seek repayment of the benefits they've spent for you. And so a big part of a good elder care attorney's job is not just helping people understand how to qualify, but also how to do it in a way which minimizes the bite of estate recovery. Uh, estate recovery, there, there are a variety of reasons why it's not the um, the boogeyman that people feel that it is, particularly in a married situation. So if, if I have a client who's married, uh, we're usually able to avoid estate recovery altogether. For a client who's unmarried, that, that task is a little bit more challenging and maybe will not be fully avoided. But it is important for folks to know that with, with smaller estates under $25,000, estate recovery is just automatically waived. So there's not going to be recovery um, if, if the plan that is designed leads to an estate valued below $25,000. Beyond that, there are other steps that can be taken to minimize it. Um, and so um, I've been saying for many, many years, since 2006, basically, when we implemented our program, that if option A is pursue Medicaid and deal with the state recovery later, and option B is do not pursue Medicaid because you're so scared of estate recovery that you would rather just liquidate everything and pay privately. Obviously, option A is better than option B. And so um, sometimes people have no choice but to you know, accept that option A is the better choice. It's the lesser of two evils, I guess you might say. Got it. Yeah, super helpful. And I, I you've mentioned several times, uh, un understandably, that um, you know uh, the details are beyond the scope of this conversation, and every situation can be a little bit different. And uh, you know, for those that are interested in learning a little bit more or seeing, um, you know, how you may be able to help in their situation, we, you know, we would certainly encourage you to reach out to to Dan, and we'll provide his contact uh, his contact information before we wrap up the call today. Um, in preparation for our conversation today, Dan, you shared a couple of things. Um, the first of which is that people should never assume that they won't qualify for Medicaid assistance um, because the rules are, are broader than many people realize. And I think you've done a pretty good job of, you know, expanding on that and giving some examples. Um, the other, which um, I want, uh, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about is that planning ahead, and, and this is going to sound kind of uh, 
intuitive or, or commonsensical, but I still think it bears, bears highlighting is that planning ahead is always better than planning during a crisis. Um, so people should try to acknowledge the possibility that they'll someday need long-term care in some form or fashion and that they should, I, I guess, consider this as they're planning ahead, whether that's for care, estate planning, financial planning, um, you know, things of that nature. Um, as, a, as a financial advisor and a financial planner, uh, I obviously kind of live in planning ahead and thinking ahead. But could you speak a little bit about the pros and cons of thinking and planning ahead versus, you know, unfortunately being in a, in a, in a situation where you kind of deal with the here and now and haven't really given any thought to how you might, uh, you know, deal with the consequences of care, uh, especially in a long-term uh, need situation? Yeah, sure. The, the, the point you're making, and I think it's, it's ideal that, that, you know, the person hosting this is somebody who um, has knowledge about the value of including future long-term care costs as part of one's overall retirement plan, investment plan. Um, because f for, for so many people, they're, all they're looking at is the age at which they want to retire and how much income they want to have at that point. Um, and at no point during that process are they fast forwarding 10 or 15 or 20 years out from retirement to a point when it's going to be raining and they might have saved for a rainy day, but you know, all, all my clients at least haven't saved enough to absorb rain at the rate of eight to ten thousand dollars a month for private pay nursing home care. They just haven't accounted for that. And so I do think that it's wise for folks to have a financial planner who helps them recognize the importance of building that into their plan in case someday long-term care is ever needed. Um, the best way to do that, at least from my standpoint, has historically been long-term care insurance or um, more recently uh, a hybrid investment product that I'm sure you're, you're familiar with where you can look at an insurance policy or an annuity that has a, a long-term care rider allowing access to that asset to finance long-term care if it ever is necessary um, or just straight long-term care insurance. And so it's not all that common, but uh, more and more lately, I'm getting calls from families where they're younger and they're more financially secure. And it just hasn't occurred to them to explore the possibility of an investment product or an insurance product, which can help to answer this question, which very importantly means they never have to invite the government into their own personal finances, which is what Medicaid is. Um, and so if someone through good planning, um, looking at what their investment income projects to be, looking at what their fixed income projects to be, if they can afford, even if just an old school, month-to-month -month premium long-term care policy, a 10-pay policy, 
something that will allow them during their final 10 years of work to pay off something and have it paid up by the time they retire. I'm a huge proponent of all of that because, you know, the system we have is not perfect. It's more or less broken. Medicaid is the de facto long-term care insurance program for the United States. Somewhere north of 80% of all Georgia's nursing home residents are on Medicaid. So at some point, that's going to have to change. And so I, for myself, certainly don't want to rely on the government taking care of me at that point in my life. I'd rather uh, absorb some costs now and um, make sure that I have something that addresses those needs down the road. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the the minutiae about long-term care insurance, because I know that's something you can do with your clients, but I would encourage them to ask you about it. In particular, all of the, the, you know, the industry gave itself a black eye here and there over time in terms of um, companies going out of business, in terms of rate hikes, in terms of use it or lose it because you might die and you've never used it. So all of that used to be relevant. And yet now the products have evolved in a way where a lot of that is no longer even relevant. So a big part of planning ahead, back to your original point, um, is exploring whether somebody, without it dramatically changing their quality of life, their lifestyle, can they afford insurance or an investment product of some type, which will take the future costs off the table if ever needed. Um, if they can't, or if they don't, then there are times when people uh, call me and you know the, the help I can provide exists on the two polar opposite ends of the spectrum. One being crisis mode and the other being more than five years in advance. And so if somebody calls me who is 68 and recently widowed, but in good health, and between pension and social security, they've got $3,800 a month of uh, fixed income coming in. And let's say they've got a retirement account with 500,000 in it and another $500,000 of, of investable savings and a modest home worth a couple hundred thousand, if you do the math, that person has a net worth of, of $1.2 million. And yet at $100,000 a year for private pay long-term care, there's, there's some significant, significant exposure there. So if that individual were to decide, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna account for the future risk that I have, by using an irrevocable trust to protect my home and maybe some of my savings. And I'm going to invest a little bit of my income or savings in a product which will provide insurance, especially if um, I do end up needing care within five years. Then down the road, once I'm 73 or older, then I will have taken significant assets off of the table and protected them for purposes of my future ability to qualify for Medicaid. So there are times when it's smart to go ahead and use a trust, which would otherwise be a big problem if the person was older or in poorer health, 
or had lower fixed income or didn't have long-term care insurance or didn't have such substantial savings, at some point, it's not smart to set up a trust that's biting off a five-year chunk of time. Um, but for others, it can be a great option. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, the crisis mode clients, that's the majority of the work that I do because human nature is to assume that we are immortal and that we'll never need long-term care and that we'll die peacefully in our sleep when we're 93 and never have to ask anyone for any help. And as, as you can probably gather from the somewhat, uh, I guess, sarcastic way I said that, that's not a wise decision um, to, assume, to assume those things. And so unfortunately, that is the most common call I get is the family I just described earlier during this, this call. Um, mom's at home, dad and daughter are being her nursing home and they need to ch make some sort of change yesterday. And so, you know, with, with most of those clients, I'm able to help them in crisis mode, but it's a very different experience for them. It's, it's done out of absolute necessity in, a, in an environment of stress and anxiety and fear and um, not at a time when decisions can be made without emotion and just based on logic and preference. And so um, I think it's a universal idea that it's, it's always better to be making critical life-altering decisions at a moment when we are not in crisis than when our judgment is clouded because we're in crisis. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, kind of preaching the choir here, couldn't agree more, but um, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that topic. And, and I, I, um, I, I hope our listeners are really take that to heart that, you know, the best time to, plan is um, is ahead um, as opposed to being in a in a reactionary emotion filled um, you know what do I do right now kind of uh, mindset so a couple of things you mentioned Dan um, brought uh, some other things to mind and first of all I'd like to just uh, remind our listeners I'm a uh, I'm a family advisor I don't sell any insurance products. Um, whether that's long-term care or um, hybrid life policies or annuities. Um, but to Dan's point, um, I'm a big believer in long-term care insurance or some of these other products in the right situations. I've got some really great professionals that uh, I can bring in to help with certain client situations where those make sense. So uh, while that's not something that I uh, personally sell, uh, it's certainly something I consult on and help people with all the time. Um, Another thing you mentioned, too, was about just kind of the need relative to the opportunity. Um, I've seen uh, I've been kind of watching with some interest. You might you're probably maybe familiar with this, Dan, that the state of Washington, I think, recently has uh, instituted some requirements that its residents have a kind of a minimal level of long term care insurance. Hmm. Um, presumably to kind of lighten the burden on the state's Medicare program. Um, do you uh, do you think that's something that might that might kind of take hold and become more commonplace in the future as far as uh, maybe there being some kind of mandated requirement for some level of long-term care coverage? Well, remember that that 
as I said at the beginning of the conversation that Medicaid is very state specific. And so I do not see the federal government at any point in the near term somehow instituting or dictating a, a national approach to this. Um, you know, unfortunately, this is a um, this is something that's going to be done on a postage stamp basis based on whether a state is red or blue. And I, I don't, you know, want to have a big political conversation. I know your your clients don't want that either. But what we're talking about, what you just described, is happening in a state which is is blue. And there are other states, I'm sure, considering what you're talking about. But states that don't want to expand their Medicaid program and have had the option but chosen not to, and which have continually tightened the eligibility restrictions to get benefits at all because they want to keep the Medicaid scrolls as, as limited as possible, it's, it's, it's very hard for me to imagine that a, a state run by a GOP-led legislature is ever going to implement a program that's designed to, 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 to spend money on long-term care. Um, so that's, unfortunately, I think you have to weave politics into the answer to that question. And, um, and so depending on what state someone is in, it's possible that could happen, but it's very unlikely in Georgia, I'm afraid. Having said that, um, this is a perfect opportunity to tie in something which you're probably familiar with. It's called the Georgia Long-Term Care Partnership Program. And I was negligent in not bringing this up a moment ago when I brought up long-term care insurance. So our long-term care partnership program is what you might say a joint venture between the state and um, private insurance. And how it works is if somebody buys long-term care insurance and that insurance checks all the right boxes, which means that it is a Georgia long-term care partnership certified long-term care policy. That's a big deal. And the reason is that dollar for dollar, that policy raises their future Medicaid asset limit. So for example, if, if someone buys a 250, uh, uh, long-term care policy with a $250,000 pool of money and they utilize that insurance, then, and I'm simplifying a little bit here, but in general, how it works is that person's asset limit is no longer $2,000. It's $252,000 because they thought ahead, they got a partnership certified policy and they utilized those benefits to extend the period of time prior to ever having to ask Medicaid for help. But if after all that insurance is used up, you still are alive and need help, now you can uh, apply for Medicaid and your nest egg is safe because you've purchased insurance with a pool of money 
at or approximately at what your life savings are is I think what some people uh, use it for. Um, another neat thing is that those dollars are also protected from estate recovery. Um, so I don't think anybody buys long-term care insurance because they're excited about how it might help them qualify for Medicaid someday, but a very nice sort of inadvertent perk is that if it's a partnership certified policy, then you will get those additional Medicaid related benefits down the road. Um, a rule of thumb is that any policy pre-existing the partnership program, which is about 2007, is, is inherently not policy um, partnership certified. And you know we're getting to be far enough out from 2007 that there probably aren't that many policies out there that are that old, and yet there still are some out there. And unfortunately, there's nothing that I'm aware of, and I've been told there's nothing that can be done to convert a policy into a partnership certified policy if it predates 2007. Beyond that point, um, it's not that hard for a policy to check all the necessary boxes. So a good rule of thumb is that if a policy satisfies the IRS rules for deductibility as a medical expense, then it's probable that that policy would qualify as a Medicaid partnership program policy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you shared that. I, um, I know that'll be super informative and helpful, helpful for our listeners, especially those here in, here in the state of Georgia. Um, listen, we're, we're kind of knocking up on the uh, door of an hour here, um, and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, a couple of closing questions, um, and there's some other things that maybe we can revisit in a, in a future uh, episode as well, because um, I, I, I just find your work uh, fascinating, Dan, and I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation. But um, if we've covered a lot, um, if there were one thing that our listeners could take away from our conversation today, Dan, what would you want that one thing to be? I think it would be a combination of two things that we've talked about. One is don't make the assumption that your loved one or you yourself would not qualify for Medicaid. Ask some questions, do some research, eventually call an attorney, but um, don't make the mistake that I've, I've unfortunately seen many times where someone is sitting in my office very sad, let's say, tears are flowing because several hundred thousand dollars ago, they might have already qualified for Medicaid because they made an assumption. So that's that's in combination with the point that I made regarding the quality of care being seamless. And so a thousand plus clients after almost 30 years, I've never had a single family come back to me and say, we regret asking Medicaid for help because the quality of care changed. The reality is it doesn't change. Mom's in the same bed at the same nursing care facility and very wisely and importantly, the law actually says that the caregivers, the people walking up and down the halls taking care of our loved ones, 
they're not even allowed to know who's on Medicaid and who's private pay. So all that really matters is, is your loved one in a good nursing home, not whether or not they take Medicaid, which shines the spotlight back on how to get a bed in a better nursing home. And that means not going in on Medicaid. It goes in, it means going in under Medicare or possibly private pay and then implementing a subsequent plan. Um, but don't, don't assume that you have too much and don't assume that the care is going to be poor just because you get help from Medicaid. Now, if somebody has millions and millions of dollars, you know, have, have a, a good financial planner like Russ invest it for you and don't bother trying to invite the government in. There's no need for that. Um, but, you know, my average client is certainly under a million dollars of total net worth. And that's, that's middle America. That's even blue collar nowadays. So it's very common for uh, my clients to be blue collar, lower middle class, middle class families that have never asked the government for a penny and never want to ask the government for a penny. And yet it's raining. You know, they save for that rainy day and it's raining at a rate that is going to devastate them financially which is an extra big deal when we're talking about a couple and a healthy spouse who might have five or 10 or 20 more years that we have to take care of her or him. So watching life savings evaporate when we are facing the prospect of significant costs for that healthy spouse going forward, bad mistake and certainly get, get help from an elder care attorney um, before you make a mistake. Uh, and speaking of which, we'll uh, be sure to share your contact information here in just a moment. Um, but Dan, th I want to say thank you. This has been uh, uh, an interesting and, and fun conversation. I, I appreciate your Thanks time. For having me. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate your time and you're sharing your expertise. And I know, I know leading up to this call, um, you know, you mentioned that a lot of your unmarried clients or women, um, you know, that have, have survived their, their husbands or whatever the case may be. So maybe that's something else we can uh, revisit in a future conversation. Um, but uh, as we wrap up today, what, what is the best way for people to reach out, to learn more, to, uh, to educate themselves about uh, you, your services, and how it might be a fit in their situation? Well, the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like pretty much any business nowadays. I've got a website and that, that web address, that URL is the word Georgia spelled out, elderlaw.net, georgiaelderlaw.net. Um, then again, my last name, Munster, is fairly memorable. Most people can remember that. And so just Google Dan Munster and you'll find my website that way. Um, our phone number is 404 920-0521. Certainly can ring us up that way. The website offers an 800 number as well, depending on where people are calling from. Um, I think it's important at this point in the conversation to also share that we do things a little bit differently at the beginning of a relationship. So before a fee might ever even be discussed, much less charged between my assistant and I, we're gonna invest a significant amount of time in a fact-finding conversation designed to identify those families who actually need what we do and those who, who don't for some reason. Statistically, only one or two calls out of 10 end up being clients. 
and yet I get to help 10 out of 10 because the other eight or nine, I'm able to get them to a CPA or a tax attorney or a geriatric psychiatrist or whatever it is they might need. Um, I've been blessed to build relationships with people and now I kind of am sort of the hub of a wheel where I'm making referrals um, more than actually engaged, getting engaged by people who call. So um, we're happy to invest that time with the idea that otherwise people would end up paying for the time it takes me to figure out that they didn't need my help. And that's how most law firms operate. And I just don't feel comfortable charging for every moment of every you know day that I spend um, discussing the possibility of working with families. So there's not really any financial risk to calling and asking, are we a good candidate for long-term care planning? Yeah, uh, uh, thanks for that, Dan. And we'll be sure to include your phone number and website address and, and other relevant links in the show notes for this episode so people can easily um, reach out if that's something they're interested in discussing or if they have questions about it. Um, this has been great. So thank you again. Um, really, really happy to, to have you join us here on the uh, Women's Retirement Radio. Um, and for all you listening out there, uh, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to catching you on our next episode. It's Russ again. And before you go, I want to provide a brief disclosure. You should consult a financial advisor familiar with the specific circumstances of your unique financial situation before making any financial decisions. Nothing in this broadcast constitutes a solicitation for the sale or purchase of any securities. Any mentioned rates of return are historical or hypothetical in nature and are not a guarantee of future returns. I'm a financial advisor and an investment advisor representative of Wealthcare Capital Management, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor based in Richmond, Virginia. The views discussed in this podcast are my own and may not be consistent with or represent those of Wealthcare Capital Management.